Um, this morning we're going to be in the book of First Peter, uh, starting at, uh, we'll be in the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, First Peter, well we know this epistle was written by Peter because first verse, first chapter, first verse says, Peter is the author. Peter is the author. He identifies himself at the start of this letter. And Peter was truly the leader amongst Christ's apostles, his disciples. The gospel writers emphasize this fact by placing Peter's name at the head of the list when they listed the disciples. We find this in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. There's actually more information about Peter in the four, there's more information about Peter in the four gospels than anyone else but Christ himself. In the New Testament, Peter's name appears 210 times. Paul's name's found 162 times, and the names of the remaining 11 apostles combined only appear 142 times. Peter truly was a servant of the Lord and a leader amongst those apostles. The epistle here, this, this, this first epistle that Peter wrote is a fulfillment of a twofold commission that was given to Peter by Christ at the Sea of Galilee. The first commission is found in Luke 5, where Jesus told Peter to catch fish, to go be a fisher of men. This Peter did in Acts 2 through the spoken word at Pentecost. The second uh, commission that Christ gave uh, Peter is found in John 21, where Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep. This Peter does through the written word of his epistles. The believers that Peter addressed in this letter were suffering. They were suffering uh, escalating persecution. So the purpose of this letter was really to try to help them live victoriously in the time in the midst of a hostile environment. The hope Peter had with this letter was that they would not lose hope. They would not lose hope. They would not become bitter and that they would trust in the Lord while waiting for the return of Christ. Peter's goal was to stress that by living an obedient, victorious life under duress, that they actually, these people would actually be uh, evangelizing to the world around them because of what they're going through. This letter can be broken up into three parts. First, remembering our great salvation. Second, would be remembering our example before men. And third, would be remembering our Lord will return. Our passage today comes from the end of Peter's section about remembering our example before men. This passage is important not only for our spiritual growth, but the testimony of the reality of Christ. Brennan Manning once said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. Okay, someone might say, well, how can this be? Sin. Sin. Do you know what a euphemism is? You go, no, we all use them. We all use them. The word comes from a Greek word, which means good speech. Okay, it's the idea of substituting a pleasant word for something that's not very pleasant. A company used to lay people off. Today, they'll call it something like restructuring. Heard this one the other day a personnel surplus reduction, okay? Those are euphemisms. A company recently lost billions of dollars and the government bailed them out. A statement from the company simply said, 
that they were over-leveraged in a particular investment. Not stating the negligence of management of that company, just stating over-leveraged. How about this one? And this is, this is no joke, and this is just terrible euphemism. The transporting of slaves from Africa to the Western Hemisphere took place uh, clear until 1808. You may have heard it called at times the Middle Passage. But this is no joke when you talk about euphemisms, trying to take something that is so terrible and put a pleasant spin on it. Recently, one state board of education sought to call this terrible piece of human history simply the Atlantic Triangular Trade. The Atlantic Triangular Trade to take the transporting of slaves to the Western Hemisphere, just simply calling it the Atlantic Triangular Trade. Those are euphemisms, taking something that is wrong, something is terrible, and trying to put a spin on it. It's sad. It's sad, but we truly like to put a spin on things to make them sound less offensive. Unfortunately, unfortunately, too many in the church have also become adept at doing this with regard to the word sin, with regard to the word sin. We now discuss sin as things like mistakes, my struggles, accidents, or an error in judgment. Instead of saying I sinned, it's easier just to say I slipped. The sin of lying we dismiss as stretching the truth. I literally had someone say this to me, that the lie was being economical with the details. Economical with the details. And a politician said this one just a couple years ago. Lying, he literally just called it presenting alternative facts. But it was a lie, and he knew it. Those are euphemisms, putting a spin on them. Yet Exodus 20.16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. How about the sin of fornication? That's sex outside of the marriage. We claim it as being intimate or committing an indiscretion. Yet 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Or Hebrews 13.4, Let marriage uh, be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. See, it's easy to blame society for the downplaying of the severity of sin. But let's be honest. In most churches today, sin seldom shows up. In sermons. In the late 1980s, a book was written, Whatever Became of Sin. The author pointed out that our society has rejected the concept of sin and no longer wants to talk about it. It made the argument that by simply removing the word sin from our vocabulary does not make it disappear. And that's true. And the problem, when we don't call sin what it is, we short circuit the need for forgiveness and thus the necessity for the blood of Christ for the payment of our sins. Jesus didn't come to help us manage our mistakes or to help us have our best life now. He died in our place as our substitute because our sin had separated us from a holy God. The church cannot water down the seriousness of sin. Anybody remember, what a character, Rob Bell. He was the pastor of Mars Hill. And if you ever have heard Rob Bell preach, I'm sorry. And if you haven't, don't go listen to him, okay? But I remember when he was sort of getting his, his movement going, um, I remember that he, claimed, he made some statements about the evangelical church. 
and he started boasting and he was talking about church growth. Okay. He was talking about church growth and he said that the evangelical church needs to change how it viewed and applied the Bible. His exact quote, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2000 years ago as their best defense to issues in our culture today. There's the problem. Those letters from 2,000 years ago spell out the real issue of today. It's sin. Sin. The wickedness. That transformation. That separating of us from the Lord and his holiness. Listen, avoiding the word sin or restating the problem and just sort of giving it a softer edge doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make it go away. The problem still stands for the unsaved. And a struggle till still takes place and affects our life and our testimony for the believer. So let's not put a spin on sin. Let's dive into one of these 2,000-year-old inspired, errant, uh, uh, authoritative letters. Okay. So again, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. The main idea for us today is if you are a Christ follower, you will not do what you used to do. Here we go. First Peter four, one through six. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Okay, so Peter starts off right here at the beginning of of chapter 4 by using the conjunction, therefore. And you know he's talking about something earlier. Here he's referring to what he said in chapter 3, in particular chapter 3, verse 18, where he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, that the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That's what he's referring to. So Peter here in this passage lays out two obligations, two obligations of the believer. And the first one is that we are to arm ourselves against sin. Sin is our enemy, okay? We would do well to sort of etch Genesis 4, 7 into our minds where it said, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. The word arm refers to, of course, a military term, heavy armor. And it was used for a soldier that was completely outfitted and ready to go. And here, when he's saying arm yourself, it's in the imperative, meaning that the believer must be ready, must be on guard, fully prepared, ready to roll at a moment's notice in response to an immediate and urgent call to arm ourselves. Sin never really sort of gives a warning like, here I come, here I come. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Peter's saying, you got to be fully armed, fully ready to respond at a moment's notice. We are in a spiritual battle with the world. 
the flesh, and Satan. Unfortunately, many believers take the, the path of the fact that we're sort of in this, in this playground of life, just experiencing things, but not in a battlefield. Anyone remember the song, Onward, Christian Soldiers? When my parents got saved and we started, they started going to church, I went to church, of course, and, and I remember VBS, and that was awesome. And I remember always singing this song. But, but part of that song says, Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master, leading against the foe. Dun, 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 dun. But the song, as a kid, I'm like, oh, yeah. No. The song is not about the crusades of the 12th and 13th century, but rather the crusade against our own sin. The battle against our own sin. Notice Peter tells us that this war is either won or lost in our minds. We're to have a a sort of a a militant attitude towards sin because it is destructive and it is very deceptive. We must both be vigilant and truly diligent. The idea goes back to 1 Peter uh, one, first Peter one thirteen. there he said, therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, gird them up and be ready, be clear headed, be spiritually clear and be ready. Peter hits this again in chapter five, verse eight. He says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We should never be dismissive about our sin which is truly a disobedience to God in his will. I love how Romans 12, uh, 9 phrases this though. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Literally, hate what's evil, hate the sin, hate those and cling to what is good. See, the more we grow in Christ, the more we should hate sin, which should propel us to pray like, like Psalm nineteen thirteen. Lord, keep me back from my insolent sin. Let them not have dominion over me. I love that. Notice in the last part of verse one, we're drawn back to the example of Christ. Peter says, for he being Christ, who has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. The word cease means to make an end to. It is finished. Jesus is now done with sin because he defeated it once and for all on the cross for the believer. In a similar way, we are to cease from sin because through Christ, we have died to it. We have died to it. Romans 6, 11 and 12 says, likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lusts. We're dead to it. Therefore, we don't obey it. John Owen in his classic, The Mortification of Sin argues that we must hate sin and pursue it to its death. And I love that because it's not just, it is literally hate it, be ready to battle and just literally kill that thing, okay? He says, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to crush the indwelling power of sin. Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will kill you. That's the truth. Be busy about it, beating it, crushing it. Owen claims we have three needs. The need for wisdom to know our own hearts and savor Christ more. The need for watchfulness so that we don't yield 
or step into sin and the need to be ever at war, ever at battle constantly with sin. So Peter says, we arm ourselves. We arm ourselves. We be ready. We be vigilant. And then he tells us to abstain from sin. Okay, look at verse two. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So not living for the flesh, but living for the will of God. There are really only two choices. We can live for our lusts or we can live for the Lord. The word lusts refers to strong desires. The contrast is clear. We either live for the will of God or we live for the will of the world and there's nothing in between. Remember, Christ followers don't do what they used to do. That's why Peter says believers do not live the rest of their time. Do not live the rest of their time in the flesh. That's the corruption of the world because we're all still in the flesh, yeah? But he's talking about the flesh, the desires and the corruption of the world. A couple of years ago, um, my wife and I, went to a conference um, that John Piper was hosting. And the conference was dealing with um, not wasting your life, not wasting the, the days uh, that you have. And the point was that we must make the most of the days we're given to live for the glory of the Lord and not the lusts of our flesh. Psalm ninety twelve says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And why is that important? Because in verse 7 of this chapter, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. See, because our days are fleeting, when abstaining from sin, we have to, we have to understand there is a purpose, there is a goal, and we have to keep three perspectives in mind as we're abstaining from sin. This cannot be a casual thing. The first thing Peter tells us to do uh, to, to abstain from sin and to keep that mindset uh, that the end is at hand is we have, to, uh, we have to leave our prior life in the past. Peter says that we have to leave our prior life in the past. Look at verse three. He establishes that we've spent plenty of time in the past sinning. He says, so we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. I'd say amen to, amen to that. Because I was saved at 28 years old. And I can't believe the waste of those 28 years. The phrase past lifetime literally means those times of the past. Sort of that book is closed, no longer who you are. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Peter identifies next here, just quickly identifies six specific sins that are of the old man in the past that we are to abstain from. That's why Peter says, when we walked. He says, when we walked, that's the past lifetime. And the way when we walk is put together, in the Greek context there, it's literally given the idea that when we were spiritually dead, unsaved, we literally were just walking from sin to sin in our lives, going from one to the next, to the next, and to the next, that was our sole goal, was to live for the flesh, to live for the desires, okay? Notice that all six of these sins are in the plural, which shows both the variety of that sin and, and truly the frequency of them. First one he mentions is lewdness, and this refers to uh, sexual excesses and an unsatisfiable desire for the pleasures of life. We then have lusts, and we know what this is. It's a, it, a lust is an inordinate desire um, and uh, passions that become out of control. Drunkenness, okay? 
The word is also translated as debauchery and just speaks of excessive, excessive drinking. Okay. Revelries, revelries here. This is riotous conduct, conduct off, often translated as carousing. Now see this, this revelry thing's very interesting here. Okay. So we'll be like, Oh, wait a second. You know what? Drinking parties comes next. What's revelries here? Well, revelries is interesting because the background to this word is actually to honor a, a, a Roman God who was originally a Greek God and the God's name was Bacchus. Okay. This re- word revelry. Bacchus was the God of, of wine who bestowed upon the people the gift, the gift of inebriation and revelry. Okay. So when revelries, you'd see revelries, you'd see drinking parties, aren't those? Nope. This is literally celebrating the God of wine and getting drunk. Okay. Drunken parties, just literally drunken parties. Abominable idolatries is the last one he says. And this literally means, abominable means forbidden. Okay. This is literally those idolatrous things that should not be spoken, never should have been done. Hey, the list is quick. It's just listing the words and it is 100% all about self-pleasure that corrupts both the mind and the body. Peter says, we walked from place to place that way in the past. It's dead to us now through Christ. Romans 13, uh, 13 and 14 calls Christians to not live for our old lusts, but instead let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Paul calls it arm up, be armed. I mean, Peter does. Paul here calls it putting on Christ. Put on Christ. Make no provision for those things of the past. John Owen warns us, sin promises so much but delivers so little. Sin always amplifies its benefits but minimizes its cost. Sin always aims at the utmost, always nudging towards utter death and destruction. And yet we love our sin and secretly harbor it and grieve to turn aside from it. That's the struggle of this world. The past is in the past, Peter says. And by grace through faith, we are no longer bound to that. But Peter also tells us that we must remain pure in the present. Leaving the past in the past, but we must remain pure in the present. If we are saved, excuse me, when we are saved and stop sinning in these ways, others are are truly not going to be very happy with us. And this comes from verse four. When you draw a line for the Lord in your life, it'll make some people uncomfortable with you and will even make people hateful towards you. The word strange here is the same word for a foreigner. That once the old man is truly put to death and when you walk out this door, you're not just confessing in your lips and your lifestyle of Christ you are going to be a foreigner to those around you, okay? When I, uh, 28 years ago, uh, when I got saved, I went from having a full calendar of friends and events to quiet nights at home, okay? And that's a good thing. This is the best thing ever, okay? I no longer fit in. No one wanted me around. And I did not want to ever be found in their company again. Truth By the blessing of God's grace, I realized I had all the friends I needed. 
Christ and my wife. I had never been so content in my entire life. See, we see it as a struggle breaking away and being cast out and being looked at differently. But that separation is the biggest blessing possible. Okay? F.B. Meyer gives the correct mindset. He says, our mindset should be, I cannot do that now. I have passed into a new world where such things are not admissible. I am seated in Jesus Christ, where all that is unclean and defiling is far under my feet. Now, notice how he says that. He doesn't say far behind me. Far under my feet talks about the victorious. Do you follow what I'm saying? Far under my feet. Boom. They're below me, been stepped on, been crushed. Okay? Victorious. We cannot do that. We have passed on. It is not admissible because I am in Christ. A word of warning was given by one uh, commentator. He says this, the temptations of the world sit atop a slippery slope. A slippery slope is something that we do not talk much about. We talk about freedom in Christ and everything. I can drink a glass of wine with dinner. Freedom. I can go out to a club. Freedom. I can watch this movie or this show. Freedom. I can wear this outfit. Freedom. If we decide to sample temptations of any kind, he says, I believe we're standing on a slippery slope. He goes on to say, some will be fortunate and not lose their footing in such things, but some will slide and fall from the holiness that God calls us to. If you never step foot on the slippery slope of sin, he says, you'll never slide off. So many things in this world are seen and described as harmless, but in the end become sinful and destructive behaviors. He finishes by saying, I believe the best course of action is stop before you ever come too close to starting. Okay, and the commentator literally says, it's been conquered, it's been stepped on, it's been crushed. Do not separate. Do not get close to that line again. Yes, we do have freedom in Christ. But be, but be concerned, be weary. Remember who Peter was writing to here. And this is important, okay? He was writing to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And what had been going on here might have been tempting them to go back to their old way of life because it just would have been easier. Just would have been easier. Folks, we've spent, Peter's saying, enough of our past lifetime living for our lusts. In the present, he says, we are to abstain from sin. Okay? And when we do that, we won't always be appreciated. But we know that by doing so, we are professing Christ and that the Holy Spirit will give us all of the strength and all of the encouragement that we need to be that way. Then Peter adds to this formula by saying, we must Focus on what is to come. The past is dead to me. Be aware and pure in the present. And then we must focus on what's to come. Look at verse five. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This shows that judgment is inclusive here. Judgment is inclusive. None will escape. Peter's say, in saying is ready shows that final judgment is imminent. Okay. The only thing standing between lost people and the wrath of God is his sovereign, inscrutable will. Okay? At any moment, Christ could return and there will be no more opportunity for repentance. Those that mock Christ 
will, will themselves see the judgment of God. Part of that judgment truly must include the loneliness and the emptiness of being spiritually dead here on earth. The spiritually dead are not happy and are not thriving. They are hurting and suffering because they are not whole. Okay? But the final judgment, the final judgment comes with the banishment to hell. The point is this. Unbelievers look at us as fools. But God looks at them that, re, that reject Christ as fool, for they will pay the eternal price of their sin. Okay? Well, but that judgment is for those that are, are not in Christ, he's phrasing here. There's also another piece to this. While those who are in Christ need not fear that judgment or condemnation, we also must stand before him to give an account of what we have done in our lives. The Bema seat. Before the seat of Christ. Okay, we are going to give an account of how we lived out our Christian lives. Romans 14, Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us shall give an account of himself. Second Corinthians uh, 5, 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Okay, not the white throne of judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Storing up your treasures in heaven. Okay? There is going to be this time. Boyd Nicholson says this, the believer eternally alive in Christ will give an account of his stewardship where his words and works will be assessed. Sin as to its retribution will not be considered at all. You hear that? Sin will not be considered at all for the believer. But there will be an accounting for how we lived out our life. He says, the penal consequence of sin has been fully dealt with at the cross. To be discussed no more. But those of us that are alive in Christ will give an account for our stewardship, where our words and our works will be assessed. The believer's sin, as to its result, however, will be evident to those who suffer loss of reward. His faithfulness and respect to stewardship will be reward. And then shall every man have the praise of God. Okay. It's a serious thing. And, and, and I don't say that to be, because I know people that still struggle with condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is going to be no more judgment. The price was paid by Christ of your sin. Either Christ pays the sin or you pay the sin. If Christ has paid for it, it's done. It's dealt with. It no longer needs to be paid for again. But there will be an accounting for our faithfulness, our holiness, and how we carried out our Christian walk. And this is important, okay? Our text ends with some good news. Thank goodness. Those who believe the gospel will live with God forever. Verse 6. Verse 6 may sound a little confusing at first, but really it's a tremendous gospel process. Uh, promise, excuse me. It says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. See, the first part of that verse doesn't mean that we actually are preaching to dead people. Okay. It means that we preach to the living while they're alive so that when they die, they will believe the gospel and go to heaven. We preach to the living now so that when they do physically die, they will live and not still be spiritually dead and separated from the Lord. 
Okay, they will go to heaven and not to hell. Even after a believer dies, some people truly think that they've wasted their lives. But here's the thing. Go to a cemetery. I have the city cemetery is where I live is right by my house. And a lot of times when I'm walking my dog, I'll cruise through there. Okay, Um, city cemetery. Okay, all sorts of people are buried side by side. Okay, death is truly the great leveler of the human race. Age, race, ethnicity, wealth, social status, it no longer matters. Side by side, they're lined up, okay? We'll all die sooner or later, but death is also the great divider of the human race. Those that will be made alive and those that will still be spiritually dead. Heaven and hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die and after that, judgment, okay? The cemetery truly is really the only place where you'll find those two groups, okay? It is only filled with two groups, those through Christ that will spend eternity in heaven and those that denied Christ and they will pay the wages of their sin with an eternity in hell. Christian, here's the thing that Peter's talking about here. Our job is to go with the gospel to the people who are living so that when they die, they will go to heaven and not to hell. I also love how verse five and six tells us that when the believer faces God, the judgments of this life will be reversed. This is a beautiful thing. Anybody ever like, you know, sometimes in your life, you, you, you know that God's a judge and God's going to deal with it and all that kind of stuff. But are you ever like, oh man, you've been wronged so bad. You want some justice? Just me? Like, oh no, I'm just such a dumb. No. Okay. Here's the thing is, I love this. I love how Peter says this. All wrongs will be made right at judgment. Those who mocked God will not be able to deny his existence and his authority. Those that denied the gospel will on that day finally bow their knee in acknowledgement of Christ, the Messiah. Those who sought the idolatrous pleasures of life will find that their days of pleasure have come to an end and that they will reap what they truly have sown in hell. But that is just one side of the ledger. The other side is for the believer. Those who stood for mercy and justice to the least of these in Christ's name will reap their reward. Those who suffered for Christ and died for their faith will receive the martyr's crown. Husbands and wives who kept their wedding vows will on that day be glad that they did. Those who lost their jobs because they would not compromise their faith will receive a hundredfold in return from the Lord. Those who remain sexually pure because of their commitment from, uh, to Jesus will see his smile. Single moms who sacrificed to raise their children for Christ will find that the Lord has not forgotten them. And missionaries who served in lonely, dangerous places will truly come home to a hero's welcome. Okay? That is what is in store for the believer. Someone, as we, as we go through these kind of things, a lot of times when you're, when you're discussing sin in this, you're sitting there, you're nodding your head, you're agreeing, and you understand that this is for the testimony. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, 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 no, I know this. You're saying nothing new. But man, it's hard. It is. We have to have a mindset. We have to have a mindset. You might be thinking, I agree with Peter, but how can I maintain this mindset? And here's my suggestion. First and foremost, every day, you preach the gospel message to yourself, the truth of the gospel. And it starts with the fact that you are a sinner, that you are a sinner. Sin is not just what we do or what we don't do. It's deeper than that. 
It's deeper than that. We are sinners who have been stained and soiled by the sin that Adam and Eve committed. We need to have a mindset of Psalm 51.3. Always, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Do not lose sight of sin. Y'all follow what I'm saying? When you lose sight of an object, you ever been driving in the car and you're not really paying attention and you knew there was a car over there and you just saw, oh, there they are. Do not lose sight of sin. Understand that it's creeping and it's lurking. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Even though positionally we are dead to that because of Christ, the reality of it is we are still tempted and it is still there. We need to be aware and call it what it is and acknowledge that we are sinners. Okay? See it for what it is. Call it sin. But the most important thing is this. See your sin as against God. Sin often harms another person, but ultimately all sin is against God. All sin is against God. Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I love that, the psalmist. This sin was against you and you only. And I did it in your plain sight. When someone commits a crime, the person who's been harmed by the crime is not the one that punishes the criminal. Okay? Only the state can legally administer punishment. And we understand this. Okay? It's the law that judges the person's guilt or innocence. Why? Because it was the law that was violated. Regardless of the, the worthiness or the in, innocence of the victim, all crimes are ultimately uh, committed against the law. Not against an individual, against the law, the established law. Okay? You won't. But if you robbed your neighbor's house, you've obviously wronged your neighbor, but it is not the neighbor who holds you accountable. It is the higher law that you have violated. The state bears the responsibility to convict and punish. Your neighbor, although affected by the crime, defers to the state to carry out the punishment. In the same way, moral law begins with God. Because we are created in the image of God, we have his moral law written in our hearts. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden, uh, uh, from the forbidden tree in the garden, Genesis 322, God came and said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. See, at that time, no written law had been given as far as we know, yet God had clearly communicated his will to Adam and Eve. And they, they knew they had sinned, so they ran and they hid when God came into the garden. Their shame after sinning was intuitive. They knew it. As believers, we also know intuitively when we have sinned. True? Yes, we do. Sin is a perversion of God's perfect design. We all bear the very image of God himself. And when we sin, we mar that likeness. We were created to be mirrors, mirrors of the glory of God. Sin is like sort of smudging the mirror. It diminishes the the beauty and holiness that we were designed to reflect. When we sin, we truly are stepping outside of the purpose for which we were created, okay? Sin is anything, folks, anything that falls short of God's plan. So whether it harms us or someone else, every sin is ultimately against God. Have you ever heard, it's a little weasel, not, hey, you little weasel. It's an animal from the weasel family. It's called an ermine. 
Okay, it's called an ermine. In the animals from the weasel family, it has this very snow white fur. And centuries ago, its pelts were used for robes for uh, royalty in Europe. And therefore, hunters were eager to capture them. Because the ermine was so instinctive to, uh, to, to keep his coat pure and white and glossy, he would never, he would never do anything that would soil it. Well, the hunters knew this, so they would go and find where they lived. They would put, put, put black tar in the entryway of where they lived, and then they would send the dogs out to find the ermine. The ermine would return home to its hole to go in, but with that black tar being there, it would not enter the home. Why? Because it would soil, stain, or mar its pure coat. Even to save its life, it would not enter. Okay? The ermine would rather face those yelping dogs be captured and killed than to compromise its core virtue. For the ermine, purity is more important than life itself. How about us? We have been given everything in Christ. Are we living dead to sin? Are we arming ourselves? Are we truly abstaining? Abstaining? Godliness doesn't happen accidentally by some osmosis, just because you attend church. It won't happen spontaneously as we just cruise through life. You must arm yourself and be intent on being holy each and every day. The motivation for this comes from thinking of Christ and his loving sacrifice and the fact that his return is imminent. But let me close with this, and this is serious. The loss of the deeper meaning of sin in our society means that most people don't see the need for salvation. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, why would you need to be saved? But folks, we are all sinners. We're all sinners. This passage in the entirety of scripture is clear. There are only two types of people. Those that have, by faith, had their sins paid for by God himself on the cross and those who will pay for their own sin by spending an eternity in hell. John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Folks, when it's all said and done, when this life is all said and done, only one thing will matter. Who did you say that Jesus Christ was? If you do not know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I implore you, I implore you to turn to him. Colossians 1.14 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I love this. Christ himself in John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from life, from death to life. Isn't that beautiful? We're all going to physically die, correct? We shouldn't be afraid of it. Because that happened to everyone. What we need to contemplate on is eternal life. For those of us in Christ, live for his glory, live for the testimony of the lost so that our lifestyle draws people to Christ. And for those of you that do not Jesus, know Jesus Christ the Savior, I implore you, seek him while you can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, for all that is provided in Christ. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that for those that know Christ as Savior, Lord, I just, I just pray that we wouldn't mess around. 
that we would understand that the days are short and that um, our reasonable response to being saved would be to live for your glory, to understand that we are dead to sin, that as a new creation, we need to live for you and you alone. And Lord, I pray as we do that and seek you and live that way, Heavenly Father, that those around us that we love that don't know Christ as Savior, that Lord, they would truly see the living light, that they would taste that salt, Lord, and that your spirit would draw them to the presence of Christ. And Lord, for those that don't know you, may your spirit do a work, open their eyes and bring life. In Jesus' name, amen.